Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise and Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and we're back on this Thursday with an update to what some would call the infamous but definitely high-profile murder of Susan Powell from 2009 out of West Valley City, Utah. Here's the refresher. Susan Powell disappeared on a frigid December night from her West Valley home. 28-year-old Susan was married to Josh Powell. She was also the mother of two young boys, Charlie and Brayden. Josh Powell claimed that he took their two sons on a late-night camping trip in freezing temperatures on the night that Susan disappeared. He stated that he left Susan at home alone around midnight, and when he returned the following day, she was gone. Yeah, you heard that correctly. He took two young boys camping at midnight in freezing temps. Sounds perfectly legit. Now, the police began an investigation that centered around her husband, Josh, after her parents had reported that Susan had not come to work that Monday morning. Susan's co-workers had also raised concerns because Susan had missed several days of work leading up to the disappearance. Now, police found multiple inconsistencies in Josh's story, but they allowed Josh to leave the police department. Well, concerning details began to emerge, like the discovery of Josh's father, Steve Powell's unhealthy obsession with Susan. He had reportedly made inappropriate comments about her, He had filmed questionable content about her, and he'd been writing love songs and sexual journal entries about her. Susan had also told friends and coworkers that she was worried about Josh's controlling behavior and mostly his unpredictable mood swings. She was seeking counseling at the time of her death and had written in her journals about her fears concerning Josh. Well, police found traces of Susan's blood on the living room floor of the family home. Insurance policies under her name worth $1.5 million were also discovered. Now, despite uncovering signs of abuse in the Powell marriage and police firmly believing that Susan had died at the hands of Josh, no progress was made in the case and Josh eventually moved to Washington. Well, the case took a heartbreaking turn in 2012 when Josh Powell killed himself and the two boys in an intentional house explosion in Graham, Washington. The details of the murder of his sons are so disturbing and tragic. Powell was scheduled to see Charlie and Braden during a court-ordered visitation. As the two boys ran ahead of the court liaison, Josh locked the door to the home, trapping the boys inside. He then brutally attacked the boys with a hatchet before setting the house on fire. Tragically, police and EMS could not arrive in time to prevent the murders. The boys were five and seven years old at the time of their deaths. Now, in 2013, police announced that they had uncovered human remains in a rural area of Utah. The family was hopeful that the remains were Susan's, but it was not confirmed to be her. Susan has been determined to be murdered, but no one has been charged with the crime. All right, here's the update to the case. Susan's parents, Chuck and Judy Cox, had filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the Department of Social and Health Services of Washington. They were alleging negligence by the state, saying that negligence was a contributing factor that led to the deaths of Braden and Charlie. Well, a jury in 2020 ruled that the state was negligent, and as part of the verdict awarded, $98.5 million went to the estates of Charlie and Braden. The state later appealed the verdict, and the case has been tied up in a legal battle until three weeks ago. A three-judge panel of the Washington State Court of Appeals reinstated that $98.5 million award, saying that the jury's damage award 
was within the appropriate range for the evidence that had been presented. The attorneys had argued that the Coxes should be awarded $5 million for each minute that the boys suffered on the day of the visit. Well, the state now has 30 days to ask the state Supreme Court for a review. In an interview with KSL out of Salt Lake City, Chuck Cox said this is the right step, but there are still parts of the justice system that they have to work through. He also said that the state refuses to admit that they were negligent and incompetent in what they did on that exact day. He feels that other children could be suffering if the state refuses to fix the missteps. Now, the Coxes plan on starting a foundation with the money to help victims and their families with court representation. I have recommended before the website thehotline.org for anyone experiencing abuse. So I decided to check it out myself since I've thankfully never had a need for that help. I was shattered to read two things. First off, the website immediately explains how to remove the digital history of visiting that exact website just in case someone is monitoring you. I've never had that kind of threat in my life. That was pretty overwhelming to think of those who do. Secondly, upon entering the website, users are warned of the unusual high call and chat volume that they are experiencing. So that was just one more heartbreaking detail that so many people are suffering. Please don't let that stop you from reaching out if you are experiencing abuse. And if you are concerned about someone in your circle, help them. Again, that website is thehotline.org. All right, let's get you updated on a case that seems to be at a complete standstill. During the last week of October in 2022, 25-year-old Shanquela Robinson was visiting Mexico with six university friends for a short vacation. On the morning of October 28th, Shanquela was found unconscious in the living room of a rented apartment in San Jose del Cabo. She died later that afternoon. The reason for her death was murky because... Friends said she had succumbed to alcohol poisoning, but an autopsy released a couple of weeks after her death states she had died of a severe spinal cord injury and atlas luxation. All right, let me explain. Atlas luxation means the first two vertebrae of the neck have been injured. These vertebrae are vital to life because they include a central nerve that carries communication between the brain and the body's organs. Well, according to the autopsy, Shanquela's vertebrae had been loosened or detached from the skull, and she was unstable immediately following that injury. All right, the case became even more mysterious when a 20-second video began circulating online that showed a woman who was identified by her family as being Shanquela. This woman was being repeatedly punched and kicked by another woman. You can also hear a man standing nearby saying, Quela, can you at least fight back? Not surprisingly, that clip went viral. The hashtag Justice for Quela also trended on social media. The clip also placed suspicion on her friends. Other videos that were released have led people to believe the friends were actually setting up the fight for entertainment purposes. It was then that her family began fighting for an investigation. The video caused authorities in Mexico, as well as the FBI, to become involved. Local Mexican authorities announced that the case was being investigated as a homicide, calling for an extradition of one of her friends who was allegedly involved. Then in late November, the mystery over the case deepened as Mexican police shared a new report contradicting the initial autopsy. They said that Shanquela may have been alive for several 
hours, and that she had also received care from a doctor before authorities later pronounced her dead. The doctor told authorities that the friends had insisted that she not be transported to a hospital for care. Well, the Mexican state prosecutor, Daniel De La Rosa Anaya, told ABC News in November that it wasn't a quarrel between friends, but that it was actually a direct aggression. Now, the tone of the investigation has changed. Despite the pleas from the family, the FBI and federal prosecutors announced in April that they had completed their investigation and that they would not be pursuing criminal charges. The FBI is also publicly advised that the case is closed. What seems to be the barrier in this case that has video evidence of the actual event leading to the death of Shanquela? Well, extradition. The process of extradition is complicated and it's near impossible to achieve unless a higher government agency is on board to help with the process. According to Newsweek, political concerns can affect the decision to request an individual for extradition and the decision whether or not to hand the person over can also be affected. The process is somewhat dependent upon the overall relations between the countries. So if, say, Mexico has refused to send persons to the U.S., then in turn, the U.S. might act the same. So Shanquela's case might be suffering from two countries trying to play nice in a global sandbox. And the family has obviously expressed a desire for criminal charges. They do have the option to file a civil suit regarding her death. The family and their attorneys are also organizing buses to travel from Charlotte to D.C. on May 19th. That'll be the 200th day since Robinson's death. They hope this rally will help to demand the attention and diplomatic intervention they say this case deserves. Shanquela's mother, Salamandra, says her faith in God has allowed her to hold onto the hope that justice is coming. Now, of course, I'm going to keep you updated on the May 19th rally in D.C. and where this case heads to next. All right, here's a quick update to the missing persons case out of Richmond, Virginia. Cameron Cole, a 23-year-old Amazon worker and father of a newborn, was reported missing by his family. On April 28th, Cameron was driving for DoorDash to make additional income. Well, later that day, he was expected to meet up with his mother, but he never showed up. His family reported that his phone had been turned off. Cameron, who was well connected to his family would not have stood up his mother for their scheduled meeting. Well, his father fortuitously said in an interview with WTVR that his worst fear is someone had jumped Cameron and that he was going to get a call to identify him. And it happened. Police informed family and the public that the body of Cameron had been found this past weekend, but they have not released where he was found or how he died. All right, here's the twist. Cameron's 2016 Honda Civic was located a week ago as police investigated the shooting death of 32-year-old Christopher Tyler. Authorities have revealed that 22-year-old Xavier Brown, 39-year-old Demond Williams, and 19-year-old Isabel Battle were found with Cole's stolen vehicle. The fatal shooting of Tyler happened at a gas station parking lot in Richmond following a dispute between the parties. Now, the two males who were in possession of the stolen vehicle faced charges of conspiracy to commit murder in Christopher Tyler's death, and the female has been charged with grand larceny. Additional charges are reportedly pending, but it was unclear as of Tuesday morning if those will include homicide charges in the connection with Cole's death. Local reporting suggested that, at a minimum, pending charges will relate to the suspect's alleged possession of Cameron's stolen vehicle. I'll keep you updated as the details unfold. All right, and finally today, here's the big news 
that happened in the Lori Vallow Daybell trial. And here I go again with the disclaimer. If you aren't familiar with this case, which is so complicated, go back and listen to the Rise and Crime update from last week that gives a pretty good summary of this case out of Idaho that includes two dead children, two dead spouses, and a dead brother, as well as a fractured religious community. Pretty much most people that came in contact with the Daybells have now felt the reverberations of their actions. Okay, the beginning of the week started with the retired FBI agent Doug Hart back on the stand, sharing the information he recovered from Lori's two iCloud accounts. Okay, I'm going to try to summarize the text between Lori and Chad and do it very tactfully. Basically, the texts were about two lustful people that can't wait to act out their thoughts. And even when people around them are dying, they're still sending these lustful texts. Well, the texts also get deep in the woods in the alternate reality of religious activity that Chad and Lori created. And this alternate reality included determining if people were dark. And once a person reached a certain level of darkness, they were labeled a zombie. There was even a rating scale. Okay, for example, if I wasn't following Chad's teachings or if I was impeding the desires of Lori and Chad, my number would travel higher on the darkness scale. In multiple texts over several days, Lori is checking in with Chad about JJ's rating, almost willing JJ to hit a level where they can call him spiritually dead. And you know, sometimes I tell you guys about this case and I can't even believe the words that come out of my mouth. So anyway, in one text, she says to Chad, he was just talking nonsense for like two hours last night. I'm sure they are bugging him. Is he at a zero yet? I miss you. So do you see what I mean? She seems to be hoping JJ hits a zero. And then in the same text, she expresses her aching heart for Chad. Now more texts about the extinguishing of the kids go like this. Lori to Chad, do you think there is a perfectly orchestrated plan to take the children? We just have to wait for it to be carried out. I feel lost, like I should be doing something to help. Then Chad to Lori, you are doing everything right, my love. There is a plan being orchestrated for the children. Okay, Lori also had a texting conversation with her brother, Alex, who many believe was central to the death of the children. This texting happened just shortly before the day that experts believed Tylee was killed. Now, it's important to remember that Lori and Chad had already determined that Tylee was a zombie. In that exchange, Lori tells Alex that she is working on zombies. She also tells him she's proud of him and that there will be no more zombies. Then she tells him that they are trying to get to the bottom of what they need to do to eliminate them completely. Cox responds with one word, excellent. Now in the conversations, they also reference the spiritual health of Chad's wife, Tammy. On October 5th, that's just two weeks before Tammy died, Chad texted Lori that Tammy had, quote, switched, and that a demon named Viola had taken possession of her body. He types that Tammy is in limbo and she is a level three demonic entity. Then he writes that he is not fully sure of the timing for removal, but once her actions verify the differences, he doesn't want to wait. Okay, I'll give you just a little taste of the ooey gooey between the two. The day after Tammy dies, Chad texts Lori and asks for her to rent a condo for them in Hawaii. He writes that he wants to get going full steam on the Lily workout plan. Right, Lily is his nickname for Lori. He then types that he wants to tighten his abs, get a full body tan, and grow his hair out. Then he says that this could be really good for the both of them. He finishes by writing that he is feeling sad, but his sadness isn't for the reason everyone thinks. Okay, remember, his wife just died. 
a day ago. Now, Chad also wrote to Lori in July of 2019 that he wants Lori to just grab him by the storm and he would follow her to the end of the universe. Agent Hart testified that storm was a nickname for Chad's anatomy. Remember, his spouse is still alive at this time and Lori's spouse has only been dead for a week. Well, on Tuesday, the prosecution rested their case, and what followed was multiple sidebars and then an individual conversation with Lori and her defense team and the judge. The final result of all of that, Lori chose to not testify, and her defense chose to not offer a case, and they rested. So there will be no evidence or witnesses presented on their behalf. And this was really somewhat of a surprise. Most legal experts didn't expect Lori to take the stand, but they did expect some sort of case from the defense. Now, Lori's attorney said the state had failed to meet the burden of proof, and therefore, they did not need to respond. The defense also filed a Rule 29 in Idaho. That is a request that the court should determine if there is sufficient evidence to bring forth the case to the jury for a verdict. And I spoke with a defense attorney, and he said, in Idaho murder cases, this filing is pretty much a given. So where does this leave us? The jury will hear closing arguments today. Of course, I'll let you know how this case turns out. And remember, Chad's trial is scheduled for June of 2024. Well, that's your Thursday edition of Rise in Crime. Join me again on Monday for more morning crime news. And I'm Mama Jules. Keep safe out there.